Welcome to our Holden Village podcast. For over 50 years now, Holden Village has traveled a rich history of faith that has transformed a copper mining town into a vibrant place of education, programming, and worship. Holden has sought to welcome all who seek contemplation and community in the remote wilderness of the beautiful Cascade Mountains. We continue to invite people of all ages to come alongside our rhythms, which inspire and equip travelers for a sustainable life of faith outside the village. And we continue to listen and reflect on our story and history and seek to discover our place in God's creative mission in our world. Our podcasts are a way of sharing our conversations with our teaching faculty around reformation, the reforming of our relationships with the earth with each other, and with a divine. Let's tune in and join the conversation. My name is Peter Hernes, and I have a split appointment at the University of California at Davis as a teaching faculty and as an outreach research scientist in the Agricultural Experiment Station. An appointment in the Agricultural Experiment Station means that I need to do some component of my research has to be applied. It has to either fit agricultural systems in California or it has to fit environmental systems in California. So the main area of my research is river biogeochemistry. And I've studied rivers all around the world. And mostly what I'm trying to understand is dissolved organic molecules, um, how they flow through the system, how they come from the, from the rain and get into the catchment how some of those molecules are sourced by the catchment. So, you know, we get all those plants, and so plants are releasing lots of compounds. Um, there's nutrients in the catchment. So those, those are getting taken up and released and taken up and released. And so I watch, I follow the water flow path as it goes through the catchment, and eventually it makes itself out into the stream. And from the stream, I'm also looking at these organic compounds to see how they degrade, um, but also to understand how they relate back to the catchment itself. So everything that happens in the catchment is going to show up in the rivers. And so when you change something about the catchment, the river chemistry will change. So for example, if you clear cut, you're going to get these big spikes in dissolved organic carbon and big spikes in nutrients that happen in the river. Or if you put urbanization on there, urbanization tends to dump a lot of nutrients out into the river and also increase dissolved organic carbon, but it also gets fossil fuels and things that come in there. And so that dissolved organic carbon actually gets older. And if you're in natural systems and those natural systems are disturbed, you get changes as well. And it's amazing how subtle it is with, with these systems. So like even in one site that we've been working on in Guyana in South America, and it's the whole forest is premised on sustainable forestry. And so they have a model for going in there and they, they, they do just selective logging. So they have a very small percentage of the trees that they take. They're trying to maintain the integrity of the forest and only take some trees. But even in those catchments, you still see these, these significant changes in dissolved organic carbon. In the pristine settings, you get a nice, fairly stable dissolved organic carbon concentration, no matter what's happening, whether it's rainy or whether it's dry. But when the, in these systems, even when they've done the selective logging, you get this big flashy, you get high DOC, low DOC, high DOC, low DOC. So on the surface, it doesn't look like anything's changed, but underground in the soils, the system has fundamentally changed. And that's mostly just because of compaction and things, all the different equipment that they have to bring in and pull out those logs. That's, that's changing. Driving across the, across the ground is changing the soil and that changes the retention characteristics of all the stuff that comes out. So that's what I do as my more basic 
research, just the things that I really love to do. But I also do work with agricultural systems in California and trying to understand how the, the disturbance that happens. And, and so agriculture fundamentally changes flow paths. So in, an, in a normal system, in a natural system, for most of, the, most of the time, you'll get water that flows down into the ground and then passes into the stream. And so it, below ground, there's a lot less organic matter, and so you get a lot less organic matter into your streams. And organic matter causes all kinds of problems. It's a drinking water quality issue. When you disinfect drinking water, when you disinfect water to, to use it as drinking water, when you're chlorinating it, it will take some of those organic compounds and it will turn them into carcinogens. And so you want to have as little organic carbon in these water sources as you can. But what agriculture does, especially with irrigated agriculture, is that instead of having the water flow down into the soil where there's not a lot of carbon, it stays in the surface and flows directly out into the stream. And so it pulls a lot more organic carbon with it. And so these agricultural systems tend to have two to three times as much organic carbon in them than a normal system. So river chemistry changes very rapidly. And so we can potentially use it to monitor the different types of things that happen on the landscape. So if you've got, if you change the type of irrigation that you have on the crop, or you change the types of crops that you have on there, or you pull in more urbanization, or you let a field go fallow, or you dig up a grassland and put in some agriculture, if you do forestry. So anything you do to the landscape, you're going to see it in the river. So you have the potential to use that river as a monitoring tool because it takes a long time to go up into the catchment collect data at all these different points but the river integrates all of it and so part of what i'm trying to do is just solve this big puzzle trying to understand what's happening in the river and unlike a normal jigsaw puzzle where the puzzle pieces are there and you have to put it together we have to find the pieces ourselves we have to make them ourselves and try to fit them all together to put this big picture together and so the holy grail for me is just as a scientist is trying to map the chemistry of river back to processes and sources that are happening on the land try to understand that one-to-one relationship between things that are happening on the land and what's happening in the river so if River biogeochemistry was all that I had to worry about and all that I had to do, I think my career would feel pretty fulfilling. I really enjoy rivers. I enjoy the times, timescape or the time scale of the rivers. Um, even the longest river in the world only takes about six months to get from the headwaters to the, the mouth. I don't really relate at all to geology. I don't know what a thousand years is. I don't know what a million years is. I, I, I can't relate to billions of years. It, it all means nothing to me. So I really need to, I, I find it fascinating, but I really need to work on systems that are, that are changing in my lifetime and the things that I can measure in my lifetime. So that's why I'm a river guy and not why, and why I don't do geology. Um, and if that was all I had to worry about in, in this life, it would be a, a really nice career, a really fun career. But with so many environmental problems happening around us, I'm, I'm, find it hard to just sit there in my little bubble and do my little thing and I and I have to get myself involved and so I've been trying to do more and more to learn about these different issues climate change of course that's the biggest one that we face right now um, but there's issues with water as well so there's 80,000 impaired water bodies in this country right now and agriculture is the biggest single biggest factor that plays into these impaired water bodies and and we have to eat. 
we all like to eat. And so it's not as simple as just saying, well, let's stop doing agriculture so that we don't pollute our water bodies. You can't do that. And so we have to figure out ways to do it. And and so then the issue of sustainability comes up. And, and if we have to eat and we have to have agriculture and yet we have all these impaired water bodies, well, what is, what's the natural um, conclusion to that? Where does that lead to? Well, it probably leads to the fact that we are making too much food. And if we're making too much food, it means we probably have too many people that are eating that food. I mean, that's the natural conclusion. If you really want to have sustainability in terms of water quality, then you have to reduce the amount of agriculture. And if you're going to reduce the amount of agriculture, then you probably have to reduce the number of people that's consuming it. And so, 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 so to me, all of these environmental research problems have a technical issue, political issue, social, cultural, economic issues. And we need to be able to understand them and sort through them to be able to figure out what to do and how to do it. And so I've been trying to teach myself as much as I can. I've been designing lectures around some of these different environmental topics. And I've been um, uh, designing courses around these environmental topics for students as well. And just trying to learn as much as I can because, you know, you can't, I mean, you feel paralyzed if you don't understand what's going on and you don't know what to do. And I think that's one of the issues with things like climate change is that most people don't really have a clear sense of what to do. And I think that if people had a clearer sense of what to do, what would be effective, I think they would be much more willing to do it. But right now we don't have that very well. And part of it is because we're denying those things. You know, we're not willing to face up to it and actually look and see what's there and face the truth like agriculture if we want. Um, if we want to have cleaner water bodies, we need to reduce agriculture. But nobody wants to face that one at this point. It's, it's kind of daunting. So, so that's part of it is just trying to educate as much as I can myself and the people around me trying to just build that base so that we have a better idea about what we can do and what will be effective in, in what we do. So what's really become clear to me in, in recent conversations is that we categorize our world as anthropocentric and even that I think is kind of a denial of what's really happening out here because it sounds entirely reasonable to most people to put people first, to focus on people. But the reality in this is that we don't really put most people first, we only put some people first. And so anthropocentric kind of, um, you mean it glosses over a lot of inequality in this world. And, you know, if you follow the classic 80-20 rule that works in most systems and environmental systems and things like that, um, you'd probably have to say that, you know, on the order of maybe 20% of the people are put first. The other 80%, probably not. And and so another issue that I think that, that anthropocentric, the term anthropocentric um, glosses over is the fact that I don't even know that we put people first anymore. It's really the economy. We're an economy-driven society. You know, you get Bill Clinton back in the elections of the 90s. You know, his motto was, it's the economy, stupid. And then you have other candidates who are wanting to run the government like a business. And it's always about the economy and how we, how we um, push the, you know, at the local level, at the national level, at the global level. So to me, I think the reality when I'm looking at all these environmental problems here is that we live in an economic-centric world, an econocentric world. And so that's the true problem. I think we would actually have a better world if we could flip it around and truly have an anthropocentric world, but one in which all people are put first. All people are the center of attention, not just some of them. 
And, and ultimately, of course, I think we really need to step even farther back from that and we need to get more of a biocentered perspective and, and understand our role in this world. We're all just visitors on this planet and we need to be a little bit more humble about our role. We need to be a little bit more humble about where we are. I mean, the earth is tiny compared to the universe and we're tiny compared to the earth. And I think that a little bit more perspective is what we need. So I guess that kind of summarizes what I think about most. I mean, again, I really love the science that I do and I get excited about writing papers and trying to put all of those, all of that together and trying to come up with new and creative ways of, of looking at things in the scientific world that, that other people don't. But at the same time, like I said, it's just not, it's not enough. It's not enough. I need to figure out another calling as well and be able to live my life without regrets. I don't want to have regrets that I didn't do something when something was needed. And so right now what I do is I, I'm trying to educate myself and teach and hopefully that will eventually expand out into actions when I get a better sense of what it is that will make a difference and what I can do that will make a difference. And I think that that's something that a lot of people struggle with and I think part of the struggle for most people is that they're still waiting for some kind of a technical solution to what's happening right now. And, and so many environmental issues or problems around the, around the world, there has been a technological fix, like the ozone layer, for example. I mean, they discovered that it was chlorofluorocarbons that was causing, were causing the problems, so they design better refrigerants or better um, propellants, things like that, so they can get rid of the harmful ones and put in some new ones, and voila, the ozone hole is saving itself, it's repairing itself. And I think the thing that's really hard for people to understand and, and recognize with climate change here is that it's not a technical fix. We have all the technology we need. Sure, other technology could make it better, make it easier, but we have what we re need right now. And, and it's really about re realigning our values. It's a cultural revolution. It's a cultural fix that we need, not a technical fix. Um, and since it's a cultural fix, that means that everybody has a role, not just the scientists. And so it's not okay, it's not good enough just to sit back and wait for the scientists to bail us all out. It's not going to happen. Um, so, I mean, in some ways that can be bad news because it would be nice to be able to pin it all on scientists and just continue doing our own life. But it's also good news because then it means that everybody's got a role. Everybody can do something. Everybody can be involved and, and, and make this go away. And when we get that cultural revolution and we get everybody involved, the economists, the lawyers, the doctors, the artists, everybody that has to spread the message and change our values, um, when everybody gets involved, then it can be a glorious thing. And I think that, you know, what I tell my students all the time is that the meaning of life is to live a meaningful life. And, and I think climate change and, and rallying around climate change and trying to solve climate change is one of those ways that you can have a meaningful life, a life with purpose. And so again, that's, that's a message that I give to my students all the time is that there are many, many worse things that you can do in your life than to dedicating it toward environmentalism and trying to solve some of these big problems. Thanks for joining us for another Holden Village podcast. Be sure to view the links in the description for more information or visit our website to find out more about the village. We hope you will make a pilgrimage to Holden. Blessings and peace to you.